Let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Our Lord and our God, every word of your scripture is breathed out by you. As we come this morning, I, I pray, Lord, that you will build your church through the preached word. You will grow us in Christ-likeness. Lord, I pray that uh, the gospel will be clear and that you will save sinners. Pray that you'll convict our hearts where we have uh, not obeyed your word, where we have uh, fallen short. But Lord, comfort us in your gospel and in your promises. I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Christ is Lord. He has conquered the grave. Heaven awaits us. The sweet by and by, victory is mine. Have you ever had times where singing songs with lyrics like these found it just really difficult? These are true statements, by the way. So just just be clear on that. Those are true. But you sometimes feel like these the lyrics of these songs don't describe how you're feeling or thinking right now. Life stinks sometimes. Life is painful sometimes. So pardon us if we don't feel like seeing something positive for once. Church historian Carl Truman in his article, What Do Miserable Christians Sing? Encouraging title, isn't it? He writes, It is disturbing when these cries of lamentation disappear from the language of the church. Perhaps the Western church feels no need to lament, but then it is sadly deluded about how healthy it really is. Perhaps, and this is more likely, we have drunk so deeply at the well of modern Western materialism that we simply do not know what to do with such cries and regard them as little short of embarrassing. Yet the human condition is a poor one. And Christians who are aware of the deceitfulness of the human heart and are looking for a better country should know this. A diet of unremittingly jolly hymns inevitably creates an unrealistic horizon of expectation which sees the normative Christian life as one long triumphalist street party. A theologically incorrect and pastorally dangerous scenario in a world of broken individuals. Has an unconscious belief that Christianity is, or at least should be, all about health, wealth, and happiness— silently corrupted the content of our worship. Few Christians in areas where the church has been strongest over recent decades, China, Africa, Eastern Europe, would regard uninterrupted emotional highs as normal Christian experience. Indeed, the biblical portraits of believers give no room to such notion. Look at Abraham, Joseph, David, Jeremiah, and the detailed account of the psalmist's experiences. Much agony, much lamentation, occasional despair and joy when it manifests itself is very different from that found in much of modern Western Christianity. In the Psalms, God has given the church a language that which, which allows it to express even the deepest agonies of the human soul in the context of worship. Does the absence of such cries from contemporary worship indicate that the comfortable values of Western middle-class consumerism have silently infiltrated the church, making us consider them irrelevant, 
embarrassing, and signs of abject failure, end quote. We in many ways have lost lament, thinking it is ungodly or, or pushes people away from God. We think in some ways it may be sinful. We need to put a positive spin on things for people to come to Jesus. But that's not true. One of the things about the Bible and Christianity is that it recognizes life how it truly is. Life in this fallen world is hard. It is painful. It is sad. Yes, we do look forward to a glorious future. And not all of life is bad. Life, in, even in a fallen world, is good by God's grace. But life turns sour a lot. Are we just supposed to just gloss over it? Gloss over it as if the pain and the hurt don't exist? Well, that's not the biblical view. So what is the biblical response to life's painful moments? Well, biblical lamentation is recorded for God's people of all time. And it's neither despairing nihilism nor triumphalist, triumphalistic denial of pain and sorrow. Laments are all over the Bible. In fact, we have a whole book of the Bible called Lamentations. And interesting, interestingly, most of the Psalter is lament psalms. So what is a lament psalm? Well, it's a, a congregational song of complaint or crying out to God, knowing that he hears and he cares. And they normally are structured in five sections consisting of a, an opening cry, a, a reason for complaint, a, a petition to God, a statement of confidence in God, and then a praise. And not all of them follow this structure, but the majority of them do. So this morning we'll look at Psalm 13. Psalm 13. So please turn your Bibles to Psalm 13, this lament psalm here. And you can find them in the Black Pew Bible in front of you on page 453. Written with the instruction to the music leader. You see that at the beginning, where that is the, part of the inspired Word of God as well. It is a psalm of David meant to be sung by the people of Israel when they came together. And it is for us today as a church as well. We can sing our cries to God knowing that He cares and has done something and will do something in and through us and for us. And as we go through it, we will observe the cries of the people of the Lord and the confidence of the people of the Lord in this same Lord. But first, our cries to the Lord. Look at verses 1 through 4. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. 
This psalm begins with a crescendo of how longs. This is the opening cry of this psalm. How long, O Lord, will you forget me? How long will you hide your face? How long must I take counsel of my soul and have sorrow in my heart? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Four times how long is repeated. And this is not a monotone, how long? No, this is a how long, oh Lord, how long? It gets louder and louder and more intense each time. Not just in cadence, but in the description, the details. How long, oh Lord, will you forget me forever? David here is crying out and wondering, has God just forgotten about him? He's all alone. Everything is crashing down before him. The weight of his enemies is overcoming him. But maybe Yahweh, the Lord, has just neglected him. Then another how long. This time David questions whether Yahweh has intentionally abandoned him. Not neglect now, but purposely casting him off. That's what the phrase, hiding his face from him means. A turning away, his grace removed, his wrath poured out. And then David moves to his reason for his cry. How long will I be all alone and in terrible sorrow? Oh, why are you sorrowful, David? Because Yahweh has abandoned me and left my enemies, those who seek to rule over Israel, now to take control and humiliate me and my family. Yahweh has anointed me king, but yet now he has neglected me. And even worse, I wonder if he has rejected me. And why? What did I do? I thought Yahweh's promise, his covenant is eternal and irrevocable. Is he not able to accomplish what he has promised? Even worse, is he a liar? Is he angry with me? Or even worse, does he even care if I live or die? So these are the the questions swirling around David's mind. David has been backstabbed by his friends and servants. He's been on the run from his boss, King Saul. And later on in his life, he is sought for by his own flesh and blood, his son Absalom. His own son wants to kill him. So how is God going to fulfill his promises, his covenant, if this is the case? Well, then the psalm then shifts to this petition stands over the lament psalm. David calls on Yahweh to answer him. Do something, Lord, lest I die. I can't praise you in death. How will you be glorified if my enemies triumph? Lord, you will be blasphemed. You will be the one who is mocked as a God who can't keep his promises, that you can't be trusted. David's God is a weak God. David and his family will be forgotten along with Yahweh's supposed covenant with him. So Yahweh's reputation is on the line. Not just David, but God. Yahweh, the God of Israel. Answer God. Answer. Please do something. This song is sung by a desperate man. There's a frightful passion in his voice. This is not a, 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 a monotone, how long, O oh Lord, consider me. No, it is a tearful plea, a groaning too deep for words. But remember, this is a song written for the people of Israel that was to be sung congregationally. This is not just David's life presented. This is God's people's song and their experience. 
Lord, we are in exile now. Have you abandoned us? Lord, did you forget your covenant? You promised us a Savior King, a son of David, yet we are ruled by these other nations and are a laughingstock to everybody. Is your wrath on us? How long must we suffer? Aren't we your people? Lord, we are always on the brink of extinction. Lord, you promised all those who fear you and love you will be blessed, yet our lives are cursed. Where are you, Lord? Again, this is a song for all of God's people of all time. All who believe in the promise of God, who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, are his covenant people. This song is also for us. And the early church would sing these songs too, by the way. You know, as, as I was thinking about this psalm, I remembered something when I was a young teen at, at Sunday school. One thing that used to make us laugh in the Sunday school class was when we pick a memory verse, all the boys would recite John eleven thirty five, and then we'd start laughing. Oh, I have John eleven thirty five memorized, and, and we would laugh. Why? Well, it's the shortest verse in all the Bible. Two words. Jesus wept. Easy to memorize. The irony is that we, we laughed at something so deeply profound. Jesus wept. Of course, the, the context of the two words is in the story of the death of Jesus' friend, Lazarus. And what's interesting that Jesus knew he was going to raise Lazarus. Yet it says that Jesus wept. And this was not a showy cry like the wailers or the mourners would have in a funeral procession, an act almost. No, these were legitimate tears, not crocodile tears. No, authentic tears. Tears of legitimate sadness, tears of pain, knowing fully he was going to raise him and that there would be joy, but yet in the moment there was pain. Our Lord and Savior wept. True Christianity acknowledges the pain in this present world. We know a glorious future, yet we say, yes, life is terrible sometimes. Life is sad. The hope we have does not erase the present sadness we experience. We don't despair, but we're not passionless stoics either. A problem with a lot of cultural Christianity is that it is triumphalistic. A Christianity that loves and adores Easter Sunday, which we should, but totally forgets Good Friday. A Christianity that loves the major key, but neglects or even hates the minor key. Christianity is not an either or, but both and when it comes to recognizing these two realities of life, pain and joy. How many depressions and suicidal thoughts are rooted in this imbalance? And this affects how we live every day. A, a Christian life that's, that does not have room for lament is no Christian life at all. It's not an erasure of cries of pain, but it's where our cries of pain go to. They ought to go to the one who hears, the one who is there, the one who knows. 
The closest the Lord is to us is when he seems most distant. Your pain is not arbitrary. It's not for nothing. It is for something. When he feels distant, he is actually near. And this also affects how we minister to others. We are, by default, uh, many times Job's friends. Job's friends weren't in theological error. They said true things. It was just in the wrong way and in the wrong time. The worst things you can say to someone who is hurting are true things, but inappropriate to the time and place. You don't say to someone who has just lost a spouse or a child, well, you know, look at it this way. She loved the Lord and is with him right now, so let's, let's just all cheer up. Yes, that's true, but we don't say that in the midst of someone's pain. When someone has just been betrayed, you don't go up to them and probe whether or not they may have been at fault. You don't say to someone who is hurting, I know exactly how you feel. No, you don't. There's one who does, to whom we are to cry out to. But no, these, these are times we give people room to lament, to cry. We are there, but are silent. We hug and tell them we love them. But healing does, it does take place when we balance lament and hope. But we hope, though. That's the difference. We do hope. We cry, yet we don't despair. So why? Well, that leads us to the last two sections of this psalm that speak to our confidence in the Lord. Cries to our Lord to now our confidence in the Lord. Look at verses 5 through 6. But, but I, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. The song turns now to a statement of confidence stanza, which is typical of Lamentation Psalms. The song also turns dramatically here with an emphatic, but I. And the emphasis in the Hebrew is the double I. I, I have trusted in the midst of all this garbage around me, this storm, this tsunami of heartache and pain, I will anchor myself in you, Lord. Specifically in what, though? In his steadfast love. Now, this Hebrew word chesed will always be translated superficially. Uh, most of our Bibles translate it as, as steadfast love or, or mercy or unfailing love. It's a much richer word than that because there's not really an English equivalent to this word. But it's his covenantal love he has for his people. A binding love. God has, for for lack of a, a better phrase, super glued himself to a people. He has bound himself to a people. And his love and his covenant go together. And this right here is what David has anchored himself to, to Yahweh's word, to his promise. His love is his character. 
and he speaks out of who he is. And so how is this chesed, this steadfast love, this covenantal love displayed? It's in the salvation of his people. And this is what David is rejoicing in, that Yahweh saves. The word salvation here in the Hebrew is where we get the name Yeshua, Joshua, or Jesus. His name means Yahweh saves. God's covenantal love is displayed in not eternal and always prosperity, but in the salvation in the midst of great suffering. When we get to any praise in the Bible, it's always a reflection of God's salvation in the midst of pain and suffering. Out of Egypt, he's called a people. Out of exile, out of sin, out of Satan's hand, out of hell. So it's out of something. That's where the praise comes from, comes out of. That is the repeated theme in all the praise songs of the Old and New Testaments. Well, then this lament psalm closes with a praise as they generally do. I will sing to the Lord. Why? Because he has dealt bountifully with me. Now, David doesn't speculate about the future or dwell in the present. He looks to the past. He sees God's hand in his life. And as we look at each of the psalms, we remember and look back to Psalms 1 and 2 as we looked at the past few weeks. They both attest to the sure and steady anchor of the word of the Lord and on the word who has come in the flesh. God's anointed one, Jesus Christ. Israel, uh, the ones who would sing this song, would briefly take their eyes off their present circumstances and remember how the Lord has dealt with them in the past. Did he ever fail them? No. No. They would also look forward to the, this, this someone whom the Lord promised he would send to save them and that he would rule with his gentle and powerful hand. Look at what God has done in the past and look at what he has promised in the future, in the midst of this suffering they're experiencing in the present. So Christian, remind yourself of God's dealings in the past. Christ has died for you. You have forgiveness of sins. You have the resurrection and eternity with God to look forward to because of this. Look to all of Scripture. How has God been faithful to his people throughout history? Remember, all of the Bible is my family history. The history of Israel is my history as well. It's our history as well. True, they they had to wait and wait generation after generation for God to do something. But in his timing, he always fulfilled his promises. But personally, in in your own life, how has God seen you through? How has he taken care of your needs? How has he healed you of your hurts earlier in your life? How has he mended relationships? Remind yourself daily of how he has worked 
in your life and how he often works. It's never early, always when it seems like it's going to be too late. But he does work. Remember also how he operates. He is the Savior, meaning he redeems us from pain, sin, death, and sadness. He doesn't erase these realities, but redeems us out of them. He doesn't keep us out of the deep waters, but saves us in the midst of the deep waters. And as we as a church body minister to one another, we can delicately remind each other of these things. Not beat each other over the head with these things, but softly encourage one another in what God has done in the past and what he will do in the future. Not trivializing what someone is going through, but making sure that they are anchored in the knowledge of God's steadfast, covenantal, binding love. Maybe you're here today and exploring what Christianity is all about. Well, we recognize the realities of the pain of this world. We know the origin. We know that it's because of our sin that we are separated from God because he is holy and perfect, and yet we are sinful, and we live in a fallen world. But God didn't leave us in this God came down in the person of Jesus Christ and took all the pain and all the suffering our sin deserved on the cross. He rose and defeated death, showing us that all this pain and suffering will be over one day. All those who trust in Jesus Christ and what he has done on their behalf have eternal life and hope. We don't have alleviation of pain and sorrow now, but we, we alone we alone can have hope and assurance that all of it will be gone one day. We know and worship a God who knows our suffering. He's not distant to our suffering, but he is there in the midst of our suffering. And he has dealt with it. A final blow of which we look forward to enjoying the fruit of that. And we want you to know that as well, to know that hope in Jesus Christ. Our confidence is in this God who is our loving Savior. So as we see through Psalm 13, we see it displays for us that we as God's people can cry out to God when he seems absent while anchoring ourselves in his covenantal love and salvation. There's room in the Christian life for lamentation, for crying, for complaint to God, for calling out to God. He's not offended. In fact, we are commanded to bring our complaints and our anxieties to God. We bring our cries to God while remembering His salvific love. So are you hurting physically? Bring it to him. Are you in despair in your life? Bring it to him. Are you all alone and feel abandoned? Bring it to him. He is there. He is not left. He will not leave us nor forsake us. But he has ordained, he has ordained, decreed that 
we will be put in situations to where we have to cry out to him. We have to call out to him. And knowing that he is close by when he seems so distant. We've had a a few church members in the past few years that have suffered greatly, haven't we? Some have lost parents. Some have lost children. Some have lost spouses. Some have had cancer diagnoses. Some have lost jobs. Some have been betrayed, greatly betrayed by ones they love dear. Some have, because of their gospel witness, have lost great, uh, lost jobs, lost relationships. There's room for lament. Give each other room for lament. You don't necessarily have to have words, but your presence, your hugs, your service can be that reminder of, to them of God's faithful covenantal love. Listen, God displays his faithfulness and his kindness through his people. Remember, these works of ours, these deeds aren't ours. They are the Lord's works through us, his people. His kindness through his people. Lamentation is not wrong. Commit your cares to him. Carry your burdens to him. Bring your frustrations to him. He cares for you. He he has shown you how, how he's done this and the history of God's people in your life and most importantly in the cross. The Apostle Paul writes to us in Romans 8, 38 through 39. For I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not an absence of pain and sorrow, but the promise of his presence and love. Carry your burdens to him. His love will never be separated from us because it is a binding covenantal love. Let's pray. Lord, you sought us. Lord, that we, we were a people far from you, Lord, but you drew us near. We are your people. We are your heritage. Lord, you have allowed these, these things in our life by your, your will that, that we would call upon you, that we would know what childlike faith is. Not ignorance, but a total dependence upon you because you care. You are our Heavenly Father. And Lord, life is, is hard. It's painful. We don't know why. You, didn't, you give us an explanation of why we suffer the way we do or, uh, or in a specific situation. We know the general part of it, Lord. We do live in a fallen world where sin and death are rampant, Lord, but it doesn't erase the pain. But, Lord, we take comfort in this gospel, Lord, that you are not distant, that you absorbed the wrath that was due us. You are a God who is close. 
And that's what we cling to, your binding, your covenantal love towards us, that you will not let us go. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.